so um, those of you who know Charlie Mackesy or have come across him before will know that really the only way to make sense of Charlie Mackesy's life is to understand the story that he is about to bring to us, the story of the prodigal son. The grace of God is kind of the song of Charlie's life. No matter what he does, he seems to keep coming back to painting this story, sculpting this story, over cups of tea amidst often great humor, great passion about all sorts of silly things. At some point, you end up coming back to the grace of God for broken people. And Charlie doesn't just talk about it and doesn't just paint it, but he lives it. Uh, one of the things I like most about Charlie is, um, you know, he spends so much of his time just caring for people who are quite broken. Not because he thinks he should, but, but just because he cares about people. And, um, you know, his, his artwork is phenomenal. Um, he lives in Brixton, but has a studio just near to here. And um, he, he's exhibited in top galleries. And, you know, I can give you the CV. He's, you know, done shows with big names. And um, yet, actually, the thing to really know about Charlie is not what he's achieved, but what he believes. And what he believes is profoundly rooted in the story of grace. So this is the third in our series, looking at amazing grace, exploring this wonderful message um, from the Bible. And I'd love you just to put your hands together and welcome Charlie Mackersy. Yeah, you, it's heavy. Is it? Yeah. Are you singing? I hope it doesn't fall over. Hasn't got a bass. It's a temporary stand. Um, hello. How are you? Um, I, I was very kindly sent the two other talks that were on this subject, and I haven't listened to them. So if, if, I, if you get re repeat, then you can sleep. Or listen again in case God's trying to tell you something again. Um, I, whenever I get a lovely introduction like that from someone like Pete, I always feel um, charmed, but also wanting to say that it's not really true. Um, it's like Facebook, you get the best bits of someone. So I'm gonna, um, I've written an introduction that is, that could have been said. Uh, our speaker is Charlie. <laughs> is he here? He's usually late or lost. Um, or in the toilet. He went to university twice and left both within a week. He failed his driving test five times. In one of the tests, he was so hungover, he pulled the car onto the pavement without indicating, got out and threw up on the pavement. 
I'll never forget when I got back in the car. I didn't know what to say. This examiner was, this examiner was staring at me. And I, my words were, I didn't indicate, did I? <laughs> and then after a long pause, have I failed then? <laughs> and he stared at me. He wouldn't speak. Um, so I indicated right and really was, you know how you had to exaggerate all your movements? I exaggerated the indication, but it was already vomit on my chest. Uh, when he prays in church with his eyes shut, he's usually just thinking about other things. He worries about speaking to Christians in case he swears or appears a heretic. He used to crave success, but it hasn't given him what he wanted really at all. He's aware he screwed up more than most people put together here, which makes him wonder why he's doing a talk at all. He has imposter syndrome, which means he's sure the call is coming soon, saying, we all know you're a terrible artist. He still watches Family Guy every night before sleeping, twice on the double bell, BBC Three. He struggles with institutionalized religion, yet cherishes the deep lifelong friends he has made through church who have shown him relentless grace and love, and he doesn't know what he would do without it or them. That's really um, a kind of vague introduction to me, a wobbly creature um, depending on something. Um, when I was at school, I don't know what your kind of upbringing was with Christianity. I, ha I hated it. My, one of my chief kind of activities was trying to shoot Christians verbally, emotionally, intellectually, everything. They, I thought they were stupid. And uh, I remember going into chapel one day. We had to have chapel, which is a compulsory thing. And uh, I was strangely lifted walking in. Uh, I was giggling. And uh, it wasn't a spiritual thing. It was a physical thing. The headmaster grabbed me by my collar and dragged me to the side. Uh, and he said two things. He said... Um, you are in the house of God and you are scruffy and ill-behaved. So get out, clean up, come back and shut up, leave. So at that point I did, I, I left. And I, I, I don't know whether you have these moments where you draw a red line under something you relate to. So I drew a red line under anything Christian on the basis that you had to be clean, good, and you had to be quiet and shut up. So to me, that Christ, the Christian statement was, clean up, shut up. And so I, I thought, well, I'm not clean enough. I don't think it's a God, but if there is one, if there is one, I'm not good enough for him or her. Never. So you've been it. And so that was really my life. And, and um, for me, you know, I, I've been on a sort of long journey towards this grace of God. And I, I thought that, um, you know, I'd never fit the, the mold, the Christian mold. I'll just tell you now, if you, if you feel that, there isn't one. There just is, it doesn't exist. The only mold is yours. You are truly unique. You don't have to be like anybody else. You don't have to have a Christian language. You don't have to sing Christian songs. You don't have to pretend to be anything other than what you are. So when you, and I think, you know, the, the, the church is a strange tribe. Humans are a tribe, you know, as soon as we, anthropologically, as soon as we get together in a village, will create a totem that, that represents us. And our totem, our banner over church, I think, if you, th if you think we have a banner over church, what do you think it says? Because I used to think the church's banner was good or nice or clean or, you know. If you think that, you're going to be in real trouble because you're going to have to be this to belong because we all want belonging. We crave belonging. And to, to belong to this tribe, you therefore need to mimic 
or follow the tenets of the, the banner. And I'll tell you what the banner is. The banner really is love. That's biblical. Yeah, on that basis, you are free. And that love is, is grace-filled because it's created by a person full of grace, not full of you have to be something else. So when you belong to this community, belong to it in the full awareness that you can be you, that you don't have to fake the Christian thing because it's dead. The true one is the Holy Spirit with you, being you, being loved, full of grace, alive and kicking and saying what you want, how you want, in full honesty. And if that tribe or person from that tribe doesn't like what you or rejects you, for it, that's their issue. So let's say if you've been judged historically, as many people have by the Christian or the church or whatever, then I'm sorry. It, it's, it's not our job. It's no one's job to judge you. It's our job as a church to love you. It's our job as a church not to judge anyone. So you are welcome and you are loved and the banner over you is love. Period. And I, I am... I'm going to ramble on that for a while. You, you know, you can take it or leave it. But um, I think what keeps me in the faith, and I'm my faith wavers. You know, I don't know. Maybe you're all steadfast, solid Christians. My faith, I question all the time everything. Always have, always will, always will, always will. Question, question, question. What keeps me coming back uh, are two things. One is good friends like Pete, like people who I can be, say anything to. They don't shop. I, I mean, just as an example. <laughs> you know, they they kind of go, okay. Maybe we should, you know, talk about <laughs> anything. The, and the other thing, um, so it's unshockable friends. The other thing is um, th this uh, grace uh, of God. And what keeps me, uh, I, I think the best verse in the Bible, genuinely, is this, okay? And it seems to be kind of bounced over and because it's a precursor to the big prodigal thing. But in Luke 15, 1, it just says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus. But the Pharisees were muttering. Hang on a second. Rewind. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus. Rewind. Now the tax collectors, the most hated people, the people who stole from their own people, the sinners who were the darkest people, were all what? Gathering around who? Why? Were they, were, were they all trying to be good, going to church and singing nice songs? Why, why do they not want to be religious? Why, why do they want him? What did he have to offer? This is the thing. Because he was full of grace. There was something about him that they swarmed to him, but they were the total badasses of society who couldn't work their way to God. They didn't have a system or a religious etiquette or a religious way of being that made them feel that God would like them. And they, they, they flocked around him. And then it says, but the Pharisees murmured, saying, he eats, he sits with sinners and eats with them. As if that is a bad thing. That is the greatest news in the history of the cosmos, frankly. But they think it's an they, they make an accusation. He sits with sinners and eats with them. And my friend, I, I do this art therapy stuff with people who have Alzheimer's, like the, the, the 78 year olds every Wednesday afternoon. And there's a guy I do it with called Trev, who I've known for two years now. He's 84, he's an ex cabbie, he runs uh, he run nightclubs in Kingston. He's, he was also a gangster in the 50s and knew. Uh, the craze. I mean, he was a pretty, he's quite hardcore. When I knew him, he's 84, he's, he, you know, he's very gentle, he's tender, but clearly had history. And we said now and again, you know, brush into the idea of, you know, things like grace, God. And then 
over time, just now and again, I used to draw in pictures, drew a picture of a prodigal being a hug, and I said, that's God's nature, really, Charlie. And he, his, his line was always, yeah, but Charlie, you know, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've done. We'd always talk very quiet. He's actually, um, why I'm saying this is he died, Trevor died two months ago. And uh, in that time, the sort of last few months, he, what he would, uh, what I would say, um, he started to get Jesus. He started to get it. And to the point where he, he prayed. And uh, what was amazing was, um, I, he didn't have family. Trevor's not family at all. And uh, so I was given his phone. And it was my job to invite all Trev's friends to the funeral. And I had a long list of numbers. And I didn't know who these people were. When I got to number six, it was someone called Billy the Hedge. Billy the Hedge famously killed a lot of people in the 50s, right? So the phone rang, and I said, and it was, it answered me, the voice, this is how it went, went, hello. I said, oh, hi, Billy, um, uh, I'm just ringing up about um, Trevor Teller. Who are you? Oh, uh, my name's Charlie, how'd you get my number? Uh, I got it from Trevor's phone, how'd you get Trevor's phone? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Trevor, well, I'm trying to tell, but basically, it's ringing to say that Trevor's died. He died, you know, I don't know if he knows ill, he died at uh, his funeral in Kingston Crematorium next week on Friday. <laughs> and, and, and he said, Why have you got his phone? I said, Well, because I'm ringing people, you know, it's, that's, the, what, that's what we're doing. How do you know Trev? Well, uh, I know Trev because I drew with him. And so I was really threatened, I, you know, I was genuinely scared, actually. Uh, and, uh, and he goes, he, he said, you drew with him? I said, yeah. And he goes, I've seen his drawings. He texted them to me. They're beautiful. I said, oh, thanks, Billy. <laughs> and this long pause, he goes, bless you, mate, seriously, bless you, honestly. They're beautiful. Trev, I mean, that was his thing. He loved it, loved it, bless him. And he, this guy was pouring blessings on me over the phone when four minutes before I thought he wanted to have a sort of kill me. And, and I said, and I, I actually genuinely had tears pouring down my face because I didn't know Trev texted his pictures. I didn't know what Trev was doing with his things. But this guy had gone from being hostile to, to full of blessing. And, and, and I, he came to funeral. So Billy the Hedge turned up in his, in his, his electric wheelchair, diminutive. Physically, clearly hardcore at once, with 40, 40 or 50 other pretty scary looking old men. And they crammed into the crematorium about this size, and they were all facing that way. And, and, and there was a vicar there who, I don't know what it's like being a crematorium vicar. I reckon it's a pretty hard job. You're doing it eight times a day to mourning people, and you've got to be super nice and very empathetic day after day. Anyway, this guy gets up, and I didn't think it was going to be much. He just goes, he just talked about Trevor. He said, well, you know, Trev. You know, we all love Trev, and we, we, he had a bit of a, what you might call an interesting past, didn't he? And everyone went, oh, 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 oh. And, uh, and um, you know, shoulders. And I was standing at the back watching, and he goes, well, you know, to be honest, I don't know if you know much about Trev, but he, he um, never really felt good enough, really, for this Christian monarchy. But I, we talked about Jesus. And I told him that Jesus liked bad people, and that Jesus spent his time with bad people, and people, bad people liked him. And they gathered always round him. And Trevor liked that. And then Trevor said to me, this is the thing, Trevor said to me, this heaven thing, you know, if you think I'm really good enough for that. And he said, I told Trevor that if only good people were in heaven, it would be empty. Empty. No one is good. 
And he talked about how the church looks good, but it isn't. That human beings are fallen, broken vessels regardless. And the only thing that brings you hope is this one person full of grace and truth who loves you. And that's it. And you know what? In that place, I could see just tears pouring down these old men's faces, just pouring. They sat there just weeping. And I was like, I was weeping. I just stood there shaking with just kind of, I didn't, I was kind of reconverted, like, you know, an old-time Christian, just suddenly realizing who Jesus was again. He spent time with bad people. They loved him. And that was true. And so for me, you know, I, I um, speaking like that, Jesus, I would say that I am, I am um, someone who, uh, as a Christian, as it goes up and down in, in my sort of um, levels of belief, and I still chase things in the wrong direction. I still uh, screw up. I still, um, you know, get it wrong a lot of the time. Um, and what keeps my faith is that one verse, but, you know, now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around Jesus. And the religious people muttered, saying, he sits with sinners. If you get into a place where you can't hack the Christian faith, or something happens to you, or you feel, whatever, because it happens. You can, be, you can be edged out, you can make whatever. Life is like a boat. If you get edged out, and just remember that. If you remember nothing, remember that. If you think, oh gosh, I'm not good enough, I don't quite fit in. My lifestyle isn't quite fitting. Remember, he hung out with the wrong people. The wrong people wanted to be near him. He was full of grace and still is. Never forget that. It's the most life-giving thing. You may be judged by humans. He, he, he will not. He didn't come to condemn you, but to save you. That's the thing. And I think for me, you know, I, I, all the avenues I go up that are dead ends, it's endless. I could just, you know, it's just ridiculous. I'm just like this. I'm an addict by nature. And uh, one, of my, one of my classics was uh, falling for a girl who really didn't like me. I don't know if you've ever done that. And, and, and she was American. I, started, I painted with her for a year. And, uh, and I came back to England and, um, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and see her. Fly back and see her. Every single friend of mine, everyone who knows me said, don't do it. Have you ever done anything that's against everyone's advice? My dog said don't do it. Everyone said don't do it. The tree said don't do it. The lamppost was like, don't do it. You know, everything is like, no. It, you know, you feel this, no. But guess what I did? I went. I flew to Kennedy. It was the worst snowstorm in 100 years. All the, all the connected flights were shut. I took a train. It took eight hours. Finally, I get to her house. It's in the middle of nowhere in Maryland. Thinking, you know, I'm going to surprise her, kind of pretending that she was looking forward to seeing me. I got to the door, I got a taxi there, man, it took me, I don't know how long together. And she opened the door, have you ever seen, have you ever had a credit card declined when you're, trying to, when you're paying for a meal? Or you see someone's face and they just go, what? That's, that was, what? You're here? What the hell are you doing here? So, oh. Hi. <laughs> so she said, well, you, you better come in. It's minus 30. So I went in. She's awkwardly made me tea and said, so what are you doing? You know, I said, well, I just like you, you know. So I'd take the gamble. She, and she, she just... Anyway, as we were talking about this dilemma, she looked, it was dark. It was minus 30. And she looked out in her house and she looked out the window. <laughs> she goes... Oh my God, those lights, I know those lights, that's Derek. 
that's Derek, he's killed Charlie, that's Derek. Derek was obsessed with her and written to her every day for four years. She didn't want him. He lived in Alabama, which is a 17 hour drive. And she said, he knows about you and he'll have a gun. You better go high. So I was like, no, <laughs> no, this is in the movies. She goes, no. Hi! Like that, like screams. I said, okay, so I, I went out the back door and I run outside. Minus 30? So I started going, okay, well, I'm either going to die of a cold or die of a bullet. Which one do you want to choose? So I went back in again. She was asking, what are you doing? So I went upstairs. Now, where do you hide from a gunman when you go upstairs? Where, what do you do with that? I got into the bed. There were two, two bedrooms. There's a, there's a guest room, which is tiny, and the big bed, which is, it looked like it was a nice big duvet. So I slid under there, and I starfished and held my arm down, pulled the covers, trying to make it look as flat as possible. And, and then I heard banging on the door and shouting, and I heard her voice, and she opens it, and she goes, oh, you know that. And I heard things like, he's here, and she's not here. And I thought, my bag's downstairs with BA on it, down in the kitchen. And I, just, and I started to sweat. And you know when you're under a duvet? My first thing while I was thinking about death was, I wonder what tog this duvet is. <laughs> um, what is a tog? Is it tog five to six? What, you know, anyway, who came out that word? Peter Jones had them. I know, I went to buy one. All that head stuff going, wee, and I could hear him screaming. And I heard her say, Derek, put the gun down. He brought a gun. I never, you know, I didn't know if he did, but I didn't, I, but I suspected because I thought, yeah, she was right, he has a gun. Okay, this is quite serious now. I'm going to be a headline. British guy killed by jilted love. So, no. And so I was lying there and I thought, I went, and I started thinking to myself, as the conversation came, sort of, it went gentler, and he was, I was under there for an hour, and I could hear them giggling a bit and sort of getting on. So I suddenly thought, hang on a second, he's not going anywhere. He's going to want to stay. I'm in bed. I'm going to move. I did what, you know, in every horror movie, people say, don't, don't do it. Don't. Wooden floor, tiny house. So I slid out from under the duvet, sat up and was listening and they were still talking. So I started because I thought I'm going to go and hide in the cupboard. Because there's no one here. So I kind of thought, okay. So I slowly went across this wooden floor and halfway across, classic. Now at the time, I wasn't in the praying kind of mode. I hadn't been for a while. You know, I'd shut down on the whole praying thing. But when you, I could feel terror go from, from the foot that creaked up from my shin, up, thigh, up my stomach, into my head, and just, I was just a ball of terror, thinking death is on its way. And so I said, I screamed out inside of me, God, help, please, please, help, please, and paraphrased that. I know I haven't been talking to you. I'm not sure if you exist. I'm not really sure if I even like you, but we just shelved that for the time being and help me! <laughs> Scream. And so I waited and waited, and w w I waited for his kind of stewy griffin, like tip 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 up the stairs with a gun. It didn't happen, didn't know footsteps. And, and uh, so I, I thought, okay, so I'll start moving and got to the cupboard, opened it, got inside, it was full of, of hang hanging coats and things. I managed to get the door shut and then pull them all down on top of me. I was in there for maybe eight hours, really hot and sweaty, you know, thinking, is he going to come up? Is he going to search the cupboard? Will I have my brains all over the back of the cupboard? And somehow I fell asleep. And the next thing I knew, I could hear noise and a man's voice and her voice talking outside the cupboard. 
and I heard, I heard the cupboard door open, and I could feel the clothes moving. And the question was, is he here? Is he here? And I, I could feel the and I heard it, and then I saw bright light and a big figure. And I was like, I, I just started thinking, you know, I wanted to say, was like, my wife's having a baby, not that I have a wife. Or, you know, just anything to sort of help persuade him not to kill me. And I put my hands out, and he grabbed me, pulled me through a bit like the headmaster again, lifted me out of the cupboard, and I was trying to fight him off. He was huge. And he grabbed my forearm and put it back and then put his arm around me and the other one around me. And before I knew where I was, he was hugging me. And I thought, hang on a second, he's hugging me. I'm being held here. And I suddenly realised, and I heard him say, you English guys are weird. And it was Brian. It was a friend, my friend Brian. Derek had left. It was early morning. And Brian had come because she called him and he comes, you know, help out. And I started sobbing. Anastasia was looking at me going, you're pathetic. But I... I, what I felt was this monumental relief that I wasn't being shot. Now, I always remember that story because, and I think of it often, because I think the Christian statement, most of the time I feel like when presented with Christianity, that I'm destined for a bullet when really it's that. I'm destined for judgment, but really it's that. I think it's a bill. It's really a love letter. But I don't open it because it looks brown. Most people don't open bills. I don't like opening bills, but if I get a love letter, I'll open it. And the chief lines in the love letter that I love are, now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering round Jesus. That's the love letter. That's you and I. We want that. And for me, there's nothing... You know, and I, I still, you know, I had a strange upbringing and I think I still struggle. I was always in trouble and I still feel like deep down, I don't know if you have this, um, uh, that I'm always in, there's someone somewhere is cross with me. Do you ever have <laughs> that? someone, I've screwed up somewhere. I do have that haunting feeling still. And when it goes now and again, it's a beautiful feeling. And my, my prayer, like my mum has Alzheimer's and, and I'm with her quite a lot at the moment. And one of the things, if, because I'm not a good prayer, one of the things if it does to me is it forces me on my knees and makes me really pray and really ask him. And often in bed, I curled up in a fetal position saying, please help mum, please help mum, please help And when I'm doing it, I feel peaceful. And I feel quietly loved. And in spite of this nightmare, watching my mum, seeing Alzheimer's is a bit like watching someone break into a house and steal all the pictures, all the memories, all the photographs in front of you. All the relationship, everything you've ever had with your mother has been stolen. And you're watching, there's nothing you can do about this thief. And eventually that thief will steal the house itself. Except for one thing. And that's the very essence of who she is, deep down, who we are. So we're all on the surface here. We've got clothes, haircuts, we're all bouncing around the surface. But deep down, deep down, the very essence of you, where you don't have to perform, where you don't have to look anything, that person is the true you, is loved. And when you lose your mind, I'm sure if, I, if she has Alzheimer's, I don't know what will happen to me, but I, I can guarantee that this, this may waver, but this soul does not. And that's why this is crucial for you, this great stuff. This is why this God stuff is crucial, because it fuels your life more than anything ever will. Ever. Whether success, I don't care about success anymore. It doesn't mean, I've got friends who've made millions with their pictures, good for them. But they're empty as lockets. It doesn't work. I'll tell you that now. It's nice. There's nothing wrong with ambition. But it ain't going to give you this thing here. 
In fact, it makes you cross. Like a friend of mine, we were on, in, on a holiday in Cuba not long ago, and he, he gets six-figure sums for his paintings. He sat at three in the morning on the end of my bed. And I thought, oh, no, he's, you know, he's going to want to get jiggy. I said, oh, no. And we had this sort of chat. He said, no, no, I'm just... And he just kept using the F word. And I said, are you all right? He just said, no. Like, you know, we've been working all this time, and we've got here. And this isn't it, is it? This isn't it. And he was so angry that he'd achieved all this, and it wasn't it. And, and he knows that, you know, sort of what I believe, but I, can, I, wasn't, I didn't really feel like giving him a sermon. I said, yes, we have a weird state. We're, humans are strange. It's almost like we put our ladder against the wrong wall. And we get this wall, and we get it, and then we get it, and it's like, that's not what it is. And it's a, it's a cliche, I know, and everyone knows it. Um, but I think, f- f- for me, um, the human condition is the same, whoever we are. And one of my, um, in my days, one of the people who I see a lot at the moment is um, someone in Brixton, she's a, she's a prostitute. She comes to my house most days. She's a crack addict, she's a heroin addict. And in winter, she freezes. So a lot of the time, she comes for tea, she goes, I'll have you a suit. She has crack lesions all over her face. And she sees paintings of mine of, of, of uh, angels and uh, prodigals, and we talk about that stuff. And, you know, when I came back the other day to see my mum, I was desolate. And, and Emma rang on the doorbell. I said, hi, Emma, come in. You come, how are you? And she, to feed her habit, she has to sleep with people. That's how she pays for her habit. So she's sitting there. And here's this girl who all the time has a terrible life. And so she said, how are you? And I said, oh, Emma, um, you know, not too good, actually. And I turned around and started making the tea. And I had tears coming down my face. And she started ministering whatever that word means, to me. Crack addict, heroin addict, prostitute is uh, asking me, asking what she can do for me, asking if she can go and get me something. I was like, oh my gosh. And I said to you, I said, Em, you know, you know, I think we're all just the same, aren't we? Like, if I was in your shoes, if I was born into your life, I'd be a crack addict. And then I'd have to make the money somewhere. I'd be the same. The human condition is the same. We're all the same. And what we cry out for more than anything else deep down is the deep knowledge that we're loved, known, forgiven, understood. That's what we want. Like there's in a survey, the, the survey was done and the, the three questions were asked, um, you know, what were the three, fav- what are your top three sentences you'd like to hear said to you? The first one was, I love you. The second one was, I forgive you. The third one was, supper's ready. That's the gospel. If you really think about it, I love you. I forgive you. Let's eat. Sat with sinners and he ate with them. That was a very intimate thing to do. I love you. I forgive you. Let's eat. Supper's ready. Weirdly, that's how we're wired. Isn't that weird? That innately, what we desire is the very thing that he came to do. So it's in us already. But our religious voice, or the legal voice, or the Pharisee within us goes, oh, I'm sure about that. I mean, you, do, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do that, so therefore you're not entitled. Your entitlement to Jesus is sin. Weirdly. Sinners sat with him, because no one isn't a sinner. That's your passport. I always thought it was the other way around. If I was good, he likes me, he wants me for a sunbeam. Sunbeams don't exist in the human gamut of things. 
And when I, you learn this, you will slowly, bit by bit, if you read the prodigal story, how, how you, you, it will change your heart and soul and mind slowly over time. And it has been. And I'm saying, I have a long way to go. I punish myself. I berate myself. I've, I've, I, as I'm speaking to you now, I'm thinking, have I forgotten something? Is this a terrible talk? I'm going to leave here, get in the car and go home and think, oh, Charlie, you forgot that. You're an idiot. Did you swear? Oh, no, they're going to condemn you. They're Christians. All this stuff will be in my head. And I'll forget the very verse that I was telling you, which was what? Now the tax collectors and sinners were what? Gathering round him. Why? Because he's full of grace. It doesn't say that, but it does the other place. It's full of grace and truth. But the Pharisees were murmuring, saying what? This man, what? Sits with who? Sinners and what? Eats with them. If you can get that into your psyche, if you get that into your head, if you get that under your ribs, you will not have to parade yourself as a Christian. You will just be. You are free. You, with the tribe that we have, the banner over this church is love. You can belong and you can and you find friends. You know, my friends, like various people that are in my life, that what's great about it is if you, if you, you begin, at the beginning it's a bit tricky, especially as Christians, but after a while, you know, you just turn up with a few close people I have, and you fart, you burp, you drink tea, you sigh, you, 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 you tell the truth of yourself, and then you end up praying. And you're absolutely known. And when I come to the end of my life, the two things I want are to be absolutely known and loved by my friends and the people who are close to me and by God. So I will say, hopefully, if I'm, if I'm able to, as I'm dying, please, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Sit with me and eat with me. I want to gather around you because I know you're full of grace. I'm the same as any other human. I'm the same as Emma. I'm the same as you. No one is different. We look different, but not, we're not different. Really. We just respond differently, and that's beautiful because you're unique. So there's no cookie cutter for Christendom. Um, and I think, actually, when I saw church, I saw it as a, as a, as a hamster wheel. And the Christians were hamsters, all trying to get to the top where the love of God was. If only, if only, if only, if only, if only, if I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And you're exhausted. And I say, I don't want that. And really, if you jam a cross underneath it, and it comes to a salt like that, the hamster just stops. The whole thing is... Like, the cross is the great spanner in the spokes of the hamster with a religion, if you like. It ends it. Enough! Enough performing! You love, you love, you love, you love. Now, from this basis, go and love people. You're free. Never forget that. And when I, when like, all this has taken me years to realise, realise, years to work out. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that's probably all I'll say. Um, but just remember that the banner is not good over you. The banner is love. And to belong to this, you have to just be true and honest and open and as vulnerable as you can be. And vulnerability is tough, but it gets intimacy. But the greatest thing we fear is rejection. So guess what we do? We don't, we, 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 fear, we fear vulnerability. So forge friendships where you're not going to be rejected for being vulnerable. Forge them, fight for them, look for them, seek them, be honest, try it, say it. 
I watched porn last night. Did you? Okay, that's okay. I'm not sure. Say it. Say it. And, and, and I, I had therapy for a year with a Franciscan monk. And the monk was a genius. And he's the most beautiful human being I've ever met. And I, 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 I said to him one day, talking about stuff, and he, I said to him, you know, you know, talk about something I told, and they were shocked. He said, listen, he said, when you give confession, when someone confesses to you, you have to receive it like it's gold. Gold. So when some, someone gives you their vulnerability, treat it like gold. If it's not treated like gold, just don't give them any more. So when, when you share your lives, receive it. When someone's vulnerable, it's a really precious thing. Gold dust. And handle it with care. And, and don't judge. Why would you judge gold? Just say that's a seriously brave thing to do. Thank you. And then you can share something else. And then you have church. Then you are free. Then get the light comes in. If you don't open up, the light can't come in. It just takes guts. And then you have power. Then you're free. Then you've got something to sing about. But it's the hardest. It's really, to begin, it's really hard. I'm blurring on now. I don't know why I'm saying all this. I'm sure you know this anyway. Um, uh, that's really it. But, you know, I'll pray now, I think, if you want to pray. Let's pray. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering round Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes were murmuring, saying, This man sits with sinners and eats with them. Lord Jesus, um, thank you uh, that you <laughs> know us. Show us who you are, that we want to be near you and with you because we're not ashamed of who we are. You came to embrace us, to free us from shame. I thank you that you will never reject us nor forsake us. Thank you that in our honesty and our transparency and in our confession of anything that you receive it like gold and in so doing we are liberated. I thank you that the banner over us is love, that we are not good, no one is good. Thank you also, uh, Jesus, that when, let's say, Peter, who denied you, rejected you, when he saw you again, he jumped out of the boat and went straight to you because he knew you. He knew that you would embrace him. He didn't fear. Help us to always come back to you, to remember your nature. Help us to embrace those who feel unembraced, Help us to 
in our weakness and our vulnerability and share it and so help others be vulnerable and honest too and help them to feel loved in the truth of who they are. And we could sing from the place that we really are and worship you in the full knowledge that we are known with everything and loved yet.